good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Reading tonight in the Word of God from Nehemiah 13, and we'll read verses 1 through to the verse number 14. On that day they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people, and therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever, because they met not with they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them, that he should curse them. Howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now it came to pass, when they had heard the law, that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. And before this, Eliashib the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, was allied unto Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a great chamber, where aforetime they laid the meat offerings, the frankincense, and the vessels, and the tithes of the corn, the new wine, and the oil, which was commanded to be given to the Levites, and the singers, and the porters, and the offerings of the priests. But in all this time was not I at Jerusalem, for in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, came I unto the king, and after certain days obtained I leave of the king. And I came to Jerusalem, and understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah, in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me sore. Therefore I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. And then I commanded, and they cleansed the chambers. And thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offering and the frankincense. And I perceived that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. For the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled every one to his field. Then contended I with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then brought all Judah the tithe of the corn and the new wine and the oil unto the treasuries. And I made treasurers over the treasuries. Shelemiah the priest and Zadok the scribe and of the Levites and Padiah and next to them Hanan the son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah. For they were counted faithful and their office was to distribute unto their brethren. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and wipe not out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for the offices thereof. It is my hope and prayer that we have. We've learned much regarding the work of the Lord from these chapters in Nehemiah. There are certain themes that are rising to the surface in these, in these chapters. We must all give ourselves to the work of God. The work of God does not uh, sit in the hands of only some individuals. God has always ordained his work to be conducted by the totality of his people. Each one being gifted. Each one having the abilities and the talents that God has given them. And so we all have a role to play in the work of God. And we've all a role to play unto the well-being of the work of God. And yet as we work, we remind ourselves that success, success is only possible 
when the good hand of a good God is good upon us. We have noted that the crucial matter for the people of God at this time was the safety and the exaltation of the work of redemption seen in the worship of God in the surroundings of the temple. The temple has been restored. The walls are built to secure the temple. And when they come to dedicate the walls, they meet at the temple and they worship God with glad singing as the proclamation of redemption is secured in the worship of God in the temple precincts. Yet, all of those things, as important as they are to our hearts, they also lead us on to this last chapter. Here we see a sad record of departure and declension and compromise. The people of God in chapter 12 are seen to be rejoicing in the work of God. They're rejoicing in what God has accomplished. They're rejoicing in the truths of God centered upon the temple. We, we noted verse number 43 of that chapter. The joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. God had made them rejoice with great joy. But in chapter 13, the influence of the world has crept in. And there has been a drift and compromise and declension. Times of great blessing can bring with it a complacent spirit. And at such times, the attack of the evil one are well-timed and productive. I don't want you to miss the point here. We have marked this very year seasons of great blessing in this very building. We celebrated our 40th anniversary. We've had the joy of celebrating the Congress of Free Presbyterians. We've been glad and the general tenor of our meetings has been one of joy. But let me warn you now, let me be very clear, in the word of God it is consistently true that times of great blessing can bring complacent spirits and lead to times of declension and compromise. And so let's be careful, let us heed to the word of God in this chapter that we would ensure that we guard ourselves, that we guard the work of God here. And that by the grace of God, we press on and keep on pressing on. Before we get to the details and the principles of this chapter, we, we should say a word regarding the timing of these events. The matter of timing cannot be determined exactly. We know, we know when these things happen roughly. But as far as counting the years, uh, there is going to be some uncertainty. We understand that timing is in view. Verse 1 begins, on that day. Now we should not read that and presume that means that these things happened on the day of dedication of chapter 12. You do that and you run into some problems with the timing of the later verses. The opening of that verse, on that day, we are told, is a particular Hebrew idiom and it can simply refer uh, to time that should be considered as an imprecise reference to time. It's a connecting clause, a connecting uh, matter in the Hebrew language that we could just see as, uh, as time in an imprecise fashion. The opening of the verse makes it clear, the opening of the chapter makes it clear that before the time of verse number 1, Eliashib had entertained Tobiah. Verse 4 says, and before this, 
So before the timing of verses 1 to 3, before that, Eliashib has entertained Tobiah. And yet Nehemiah states that at the time that Eliashib is entertaining Tobiah, Nehemiah is actually not at Jerusalem. Verse 6 says, But in all this time was not I at Jerusalem. And so he returns to Jerusalem and hears of the entertaining of Tobiah by Eliashib. And so when you see verse number 7, you've got to take the timing, or verse number 6, you've got to take the timing in relation to verse number 6. For in verse 6 he says, For in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, came I unto the king. Thirty-second year. Now you go back to chapter 2 and the verse number 1, and you will see that at that time, Nehemiah approaches the king, and the time is said to be in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king. So now, 11 or 12 years later, we find Nehemiah again coming to the king. And let me suggest to you, it is a second time whereby he's approached the king for permission to go to Jerusalem. Therefore, what we have is Nehemiah leaving Persia the first time, seeing the walls being rebuilt, seeing the walls being dedicated, and then at some time returning back to Persia. At that time, there was a slide, a declension in his absence, and then he subsequently returns and conducts the work of reformation. Verse 1 to 3 are a summary statement of what he does as he returns on this second visit to Jerusalem. He's got permission the second time to come. Remember back in chapter 2, he gave assurances that he would not go to Jerusalem and stay. He kept his word. He goes back to the king and then asks a second time and returns back to Jerusalem. Sometime after the dedication of the walls. And in that time period, between the walls being dedicated and them returning, there was this time of declension compromise. And we'll see it as we see later on. We'll see that in a, in a few areas. And what is clear right at the very beginning, we don't know how long Nehemiah was away, but we should understand that we can never rest in the blessings of God in former times, but we must be constantly watchful for signs of spiritual declension in the work of God. And so at times of blessing, we must be watchful. Guard our hearts, guard the work of God in a, in a particular fashion. And so tonight, we'll begin to look at this chapter of declension and reformation, thankfully. But let's begin to look at it by thinking about the root. What is the root of the declension here? I've said to you already, verse 1 to 3 is the, the summary statement. And then verse 4 to the end really gives you three particular issues that are illustrative of the principle of declension back in verse number 1 through 3. But what's at stake here is given to us in the verses 1 to 3, and in particular the end of verse number 3 where it says, that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. The solution to the problem was to separate from Israel all this company known as the mixed multitude. So the root cause of the declension of this chapter was a compromise with the world. 
a spirit of worldliness that had crept in the work of God. It is seeing in this chapter how the world around us can affect the life of the people of God. And we will see that in, in three areas. But verse number three makes it clear that there was this company known as the mixed multitude. The term speaks of those in the world around that had mixed with the people of God. So there was within Israel a, a mixture of those who had come in from the world, had become part of the, 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 the covenant community, but they, they, they were a mixed multitude. They were known as a mingled people. That's how the term, the word mixed multitude is translated by Jeremiah and Ezekiel. A mingled people. The words actually used back in, in, in Leviticus chapter 13. Uh, there is speaking about the garment. Leviticus 13 deals with the issue of the leprosy. And the leprosy could be detected in the garment. In the warp or the woof. Uh, I was completely ignorant of what a warp and woof was. Uh, but this term warp and woof used in the authorised version has a particular, uh, particular meaning that, that deals with the matter of weaving. And the, the, if you go back to uh, the old weaving industry, and that was a big thing in, in Northern Ireland, the linen industry. Uh, well, there was a weaver and looms were used. And what happened was the, uh, the, the, the particular threads of the garments, they were interwoven in a, in a lattice formation. And one direction was the warp and the other direction was the woof. And they were joined together in the, in, in the garment. Now, the warp's one thing, but the woof, and the woof is this word translated mixed here in Nehemiah chapter 13. It's the idea of two particular people groups being so interwoven that to look from a distance, you, you couldn't discern the warp and the woof. There are people who are so mingled in with the people of God that have become this mixed, this mingled community. In the Psalm 106, you'll see the term used in a, in a negative fashion. In the Psalm 106, in the verse number 34, they did not destroy the nations concerning whom the Lord commanded them. It's describing, of course, the, the people of God as the end of the promised land. They did not destroy the nations, verse 35, but were mingled among the heathen and learned their works and they served their idols. There's the word used again, mingled here. Same word used for mixed over in Nehemiah 13. This time they're, they're mingled among the heathen. But the result of this mingling in Psalm 106 was a compromise. Learning their works, serving their idols. So the true religion of the Jew was compromised by the world coming into their midst. And when you get a mixed multitude, it is not... That the people of God so influence the ungodly that the ungodly are consumed by godliness. No, when there's a mingling and a mixture, it's always the case that the ungodly come in and the people of God compromise. And they let their standards down. And they compromise their doctrines. Well, whenever, whenever there's a mixture of the multitudes, there's always compromise of truth. And so it was here. And the instruction, the instruction was that the people of God are to be a separate people. 
So when Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem and he hears all that's going on, he makes sure that the outcome, having heard the law of God, is that there's a separation. A renewed determination to separate the people from this mixed multitude. Now it is clear. It is clear that when we come into the New Testament church that we are not to live as, as hermits. We are not to shut ourselves off in monasteries and nunneries and the like. That is very clear in the word of God. Please turn to John chapter 17. Because what sometimes happens when well-meaning people read the Old Testament scriptures regarding separation. And they see the separation involved a physical separation of the Israelite from the other nations. They presume that there should be a physical separation of the church from the world. And so there can be a tendency that as we read the Old Testament, we can misapply it and presume that we are to isolate ourselves off from any interaction with the world around us. And that is not New Testament teaching. You take the words of Christ himself in this prayer. Verse 14. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And there you see the, uh, the well-known phrase originating from this particular chapter that the Christian church is to be in the world, though they are not of the world. And Philippians chapter 2 gives us the picture. Among whom we shine as lights in the world. That as we live in the midst of this world, we are to influence the world by being separated from the world. Not physically, but spiritually. And so when Paul would write to the church in Rome and instruct the church in Rome in chapter 12 in light of the gospel, he would say to them, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It is the mind that is particularly at stake when it comes to the issue of worldliness creeping into the church. Again, I've said before, when I was growing up, worldliness involved particular actions. And in the fundamentalist tradition in Northern Ireland, worldliness involved perhaps what clothes you wore, or perhaps where you would go, or what you would choose by, by way of entertainment. All of these external things were viewed as worldliness, and, and some of that was absolutely right. We've gone back on some of those things, and it's not a good thing. But in the emphasizing of the external, we have perhaps missed the subtlety of the spiritual and the mental. And Paul tells us that we are to be transformed by the renew of our minds as we are not conformed to this world. So as we live in this world, the great danger is that this world's thinking will infiltrate the church. And this one's thinking will come into our thinking. And our principles will be, will be influenced by the thinking of the world. The world's view of sin has definitely influenced many in the visible church. Where there are many people who go to churches 
that will never ever preach sin as being rebellion against a just and holy God. There's been compromise. Because the world's distaste for the concept of sin and the world's view of man's inherent goodness has actually come into the church. I need to say nothing about the issue of gender and sexuality. There are churches who are happy to embrace gender fluidity. Happy to embrace a gay minister or a gay elder. Why does that come about? Because the multitude in the world around us has in its thinking come into the church. And there's now this mixed multitude. You take the church's view of power and possession. I don't think any of us are entirely exempt from having an ungodly perspective regarding material possessions. We're not concerned with our daily bread. We're concerned with our pension or retirement plan. You can't tell me that we haven't been influenced by the thinking of the world in these things. We all have been. So the root of declension here is in this term, the mixed multitude. There is compromise with the world. But let's move on in the second place to the features of this declension. There are three areas in which this spiritual declension has set in. Compromise in the Sabbath day, compromise in the house of God, and compromise in the issue of marriage and family. Nehemiah, as he returns to Jerusalem, is forced to deal with the same problems previously addressed. There is a pattern to the sin. The issues of the state of worship in God's house, the Sabbath day and marriage, are issues which should ring a bell in your mind. Remember chapter 8? That great chapter of the preaching of the word of God, followed by repentance in chapter 9, followed by the making of covenant in chapter 10. The implication being, they would promise to address those areas and be obedient in the areas they had previously neglected. And back in chapter 10, you could turn back there quickly, chapter 10, verse 30. They say, we will not give our daughters to the people of the land, nor take their sons, or take their daughters for our sons. Verse 31, they deal with the Sabbath day. Chapter 10, verse 32, they deal with the house of God and the service of the house of God. The same three areas of chapter 10 are the areas they fall into in chapter 13. There's a pattern of sin. There's a repetition of sin. These areas are the areas that will always, always be seen in the compromise of God's people. Family, the house of God, and the day of God. They will always be areas of compromise. But more generally, we should remind ourselves... Just because we've seen victory over sin in the past does not mean that we'll be susceptible or not be susceptible to the same sin in the future. You can commit sin, get victory over that sin, and then in a short time find yourself guilty of the very same sin again. Take heed, dear brethren. Take heed, dear sister. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. Guard your heart continually. There's a pattern to sin. There is also the need for perseverance in the true saint. Spiritual revival is to be treasured. 
But the tendency of the people is to go back. The need that we have in our day is not only for commitment to obedience, but endurance in obedience. Let us run with endurance, with patience, with perseverance the race. So let's, let's not so much worry about the times of spiritual excitement. Let's not crave spiritual excitement. Let's crave spiritual endurance. And just keeping on, keeping on. Not about bursts of energy, but just consistent faithfulness in the things of God. That's what's required. That's what Christ requires of us, of his people. There is also, praise God, the patience that Nehemiah shows as a servant of God. You have this pattern of sin. You have the the need for the perseverance of the true saint. But Nehemiah, he shows a Christ-like patience. He deals with the problem. He doesn't just throw up the head and give up on them all. What's the point? This company are so determined to keep on backsliding. Why would I bother with them? I've come all this way back from Persia. Why would I bother with them? No, none of that spirit in Nehemiah. None of that spirit in Christ praises Nehem. The bruised reed and the smoking flax. Christ doesn't snuff it out, doesn't crush it. He's willing to be patient. Just how often was he patient with the disciples? How slow they were to learn. How slow we are to learn. How quick we are to backslide. How quick we are to fall back into sin. And let me encourage you, when you fall back into sin, remember this chapter, remember the patience of Nehemiah as it points to the patience of Christ. And do not despair when you fall back into sin. Get up and get going again. Repent. Exercise faith in Christ. And he will not give up on us. So we have the patience of Nehemiah as he seeks to prayerfully deal with the problems of God's people. This message is a message of warning to our hearts, to, to my heart, to your heart. Beware complacency in the things of God. Gird up the loins of your mind. Put on the armor of God. Stand in the evil day. Do not allow the world to creep into your mind or into this church. But let us ensure that we stand upon the truth of God and upon his word. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified. Thank you.